We love coming here together to engage in all kinds of dialogue. We love coming together to, to talk together and to visit together socially. We love to come learn together here uh, in this sanctuary. We love to be challenged uh, in this place, this holy place around holy ideas. And that has been the tradition of the Jewish people for millennia. It's what we do. We challenge one another, l'shem shemaim, for the sake of heaven, for the sake of making things better, for the sake of bringing whatever it is we're engaged with uh, to a better place. We are charged with being willing to risk hearing across differences. We are charged as Jews with being willing to listen deeply to positions we don't agree with. That is what we do. Right now we're in the book of Deuteronomy. In the Jewish lectionary, in the Jewish uh, year cycle, we are studying the book of Deuteronomy, uh, which is a book of law. And I have an article that's about this thick, it's about, about 50 pages thick, that's about how Deuteronomy is the basis for the United States Constitution. How Deuteronomy, I have not read it, I will be honest with you, right? I have not read it. Um, I read that big, long intro that kind of gives you the whole, you know, article in a nutshell. Um, but the idea is that for one of the first times in uh, this universe's history, there was a people who said, we choose to be governed by a set of laws that we understand to be fueled and where it gets its authority is from timeless values, ethics and morals and values that we tie to holiness. That is the whole idea of Deuteronomy, that we agree to be bound by a set of laws that are written and we agree that those are expressive of what we think are ultimate values, what some of us call uh, godly values. Um, what that has meant, though, was a bunch of argument in Jewish tradition about how to interpret that document. And so the Talmud, as you know, is huge. Each book is like this. And then if you see, like, rabbis, like, uh, in their offices, like people who can afford them, you see a set that's like from here to here of books like this. It's rabbinic arguments over the generations about what that constitution means. The constitution, the earliest form that we have in Torah. So here it's no different in our country. The, do the document that we have that's the constitution doesn't solve really anything. It opens a set of questions. It opens a dialogue. It opens arguments. It opens uh, with, here's what we think are the values. Now, how do we translate those values into the civilizations in which we live? And uh, for us in the United States, Jews have always been at the front lines of fighting for what they believed was the proper interpretation of the law of the Constitution. And it comes out of a long history of that law in that glass box back there that we have argued about for millennia. We are no different. Let us please embrace, it's a prelude to the Rosh Hashanah sermon. Um, let us please embrace our ability, our freedom to engage respectfully in argument and debate about what that document means, what the Constitution means. We have experts here who are going to walk us through what it means for us right now. 
where we are right now as Americans in uh, dealing with this document and the people who are charged with uh, interpreting it and implementing all of the things that will affect the citizens that are governed by it. We thank Angela Milstein and Gina Deutsch Zacharin and Michelle Ross, our Tikkun Olam leaders in our congregation. for bringing us this most recent uh, iteration of what it means to take seriously the rights and responsibilities of being Americans and engaging with these important ideas and ideals. Gina will now uh, introduce our speakers. I'm so honored to introduce you guys. Okay. UCLA law professor Adam Winkler is a nationally recognized expert on American constitutional law. His scholarship has been cited and quoted in landmark Supreme Court cases, including opinions on the Second Amendment and on corporate political speech rights. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, New Republic, The Atlantic, Slate, The Daily Beast. He is frequently a commentator about legal issues and has appeared on CNN, NBC Nightly News, The News Hour, ABC News. All things considered, marketplace and public radio stations across the country. He is the author of over two dozen scholarly articles, co-editor of the Encyclopedia of the American Constitution, and has written over 100 opinion pieces on legal issues. In 2011, he published Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, which the Los Angeles Times called intellectually satisfying, emotionally rewarding, an antidote to so much in the gun debate that is one-sided and dishonest. In his book, uh, his new book, We, the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights, will be published in February 2018. Thank you. Hector Villagra has been Executive Director at the ACLU of Southern California since 2011. Prior to that, he launched the Orange County Office of the ACLU of Southern California and served as its director until 2009. Before joining ACLU Southern California, Hector served as counsel for the Los Angeles Regional Office of the Mexican American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. He has numerous civil rights cases involving such issues as educational equity, religious discrimination, immigrants' rights, and voting rights. Hector received the Daniel Levy Award for Outstanding Achievement in Immigration Law from the National Lawyers Guild. He received the Attorney of the Year Award from the Hispanic Bar Association of Orange County, and he received the Excellence in Leadership Award from National Latina Latino Law Student Association. After Hector graduated from Columbia University and Columbia University Law School, he served as law clerk to Robert Wiltz, Chief Justice of the New Jersey Supreme Court, and Stephen Reinhardt of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. He currently serves on the board of Just Detention International. Last but never least, Jessica Yellen was the chief White House correspondent for CNN from 2011 to 2013. Described as one of the most influential women in Washington by Elle magazine, she began reporting for CNN as the network's senior political correspondent in 20, uh, 2007, covering Capitol Hill domestic politics and the White House. 
She has conducted in-depth interviews with Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Michelle Obama, Rahm Emanuel, John Boehner, Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush, Laura Bush, and Larry Summers. Prior to CNN, Jessica was a White House correspondent for ABC News, reporting on politics and culture for such programs as Good Morning America and Nightline. She has also reported from around the globe, including Russia, China, Europe, Latin America, and Mongolia. Jessica's work has been published in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Detail Magazine, and Entertainment Weekly. She graduated from Harvard College and was a fellow at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. Jessica is presently a senior fellow at the USC Annenberg School of Journalism and a member of the Board of Directors for the Center for Public Integrity. Please help me welcome our discussant. Thank you for that lovely introduction, and to both of you, a real treat to share this moment with you, and for everyone, to everyone for coming out today. I just want to give you a sense of what we're going to do up here so you know how the afternoon's going. We'll have a discussion, and then we're going to open it up for questions. So if we don't get to something that is a burning topic in your household that you really need clarification on, uh, save it. We'll have a time for you in a bit. Um, I see this as a great opportunity to begin by helping to clarify some of these raging debates we're all either um, having ourselves or party to because it's the soundtrack of our world right now. And one of the issues that's constantly in the front burner, at least if you ever come across cable television, is this notion that we're in a constitutional crisis or on the cusp of one. So before we even begin to talk about the issues, I was hoping that you guys could help us define these terms uh, and, and give us an understanding. Can we start with you, Hector? What is a constitutional crisis? Uh, to me, <coughs> it's uh, a situation where our system is uh, in question. Uh, whether the protections that are in place are actually strong enough to hold, uh, whether they will hold. And part of that is a question of, of good faith. Uh, our system presupposes that the actors in it will act in good faith. And just to give you an example, you know, in, in 1973, the Supreme Court orders President Nixon to turn over the Watergate tapes. Um, the system presupposes that the president would act in good faith and abide by that order. But what if he doesn't? The Supreme Court doesn't have an army. The Supreme Court doesn't have police officers that it can send to the White House and forcibly extract those tapes from the White House. What happens if the president refuses? Uh, it's not really clear. Certainly the political branches would have to kick in at that point. Um, another example that I think I, I can give you that helps clarify this is 1957. Uh, federal District Court orders that schools in Arkansas be desegregated and that a plan for integration of those schools be implemented. Uh, the school district balks at enforcing that plan and the governor sends in the National Guard to prevent nine black children from being enrolled in the high school. 
Again, the federal courts don't have police officers to enforce that order. How is it that that order is uh, allowed to be the supreme law of the land? Well, in that case, what you actually had happen is the president of the United, uh, United States, Dwight Eisenhower, actually sent in the federal National Guard to ensure that those nine students would be enrolled. Um, but imagine if the president had sat idly by and watched this play out. Um, that, to me, is sort of the essence of the constitutional crisis, is uh, do people believe in these uh, checks and balances sufficiently to make them uh, operate the way that they were intended? Uh, and so, to me, not everything that's going on today is a constitutional crisis, but some of it is certainly starting to look like one. Adam, I want to um, ask you to elaborate on that, because I, I, I've spoken to people who say things to me such as, uh, I passionately believe that the notion of a wall is un-American. If there's a wall, that will be a constitutional crisis. Or it, the president revoking DACA presents a constitutional crisis because this is un-American. Now, those are bad policies to some people, but it, not a crisis. So can you help tease out what Hector was saying, both what's the difference between constitutional crisis and constitutional conflict, and have we ever been in a true crisis? Right. Well, no, that's a great distinction that, that you make, Jessica, between conflict and crisis. Like, we have constitutional conflicts all the time, right? We have constitutional cases. We have a Supreme Court that's resolving constitutional cases all the time. We have the Supreme Court often telling the executive or Congress that you've acted unconstitutionally and scaling back what they do. Uh, as Hector says, we've got a long history of presidents respecting that, and so that doesn't cause a crisis. But I think when we get a, the difference between a conflict and a crisis is the crisis is when the Constitution ceases to work, ceases to work as uh, it's designed uh, to work. And while Hector's certainly right that uh, there's an element of presumption of good faith, that people will operate with good faith, I think actually a whole bunch of provisions of the Constitution are really premised on the idea that there's not going to be a lot of, uh, uh, maybe not, it won't be good faith, but that each branch will try to aggrandize its own power and pursue its own policies without the others. And so we have the system in place that's designed to have checks and balances. And the reason why we have checks and balances is because one branch is going to do something that another branch doesn't like. One of the reasons why it seems today that we're in a sort of constant state of constitutional crisis is because what the framers divided had so much faith in the separation of powers. But what we're seeing today is that it's not the separation of powers isn't as important as we once thought if all of the branches of government are held by the same political party that you don't get checks and balances because Congress is not going to do very much to check the president because they're of the same political party. And so what we kind of need in the, in the modern day is not just separation of powers, but separation of parties, too, in some ways. And that when the different branches are in the hands of different parties, we're more likely to get this uh, balancing and checking effect. And right now we don't see that. So you see a president who makes a bold declaration of what he's going to do, like the wall or, or DACA, and there's a sense that Congress is just going to fall in line and do whatever he says. And I think that's, so it's, we're not satisfying that idea of these branches c controlling each other. And so that seems like we're in a sense of crisis. But surely the founders considered the possibility that all branches would be controlled, or the legislature and the White House would be fully controlled by one party. 
Well, I mean, remember one of one of the famous mistakes that the framers made is that they didn't believe that there would be political parties and that they presumed <laughs> right. that there would not be political parties. And uh, I, um, I hope some of you have had the chance to go down and see Hamilton now that it's playing here in Los Angeles. And it's really wonderful. Take your kids. They get so interested in history and the Constitution. Of course, I would want the kids to see <laughs> the Constitution. Um, but when you see it, well, a big part of what ha- the story of Hamilton is about the rise of political parties in the, in the, during the, the tail end of the Washington administration as the battle between Hamilton and Jefferson heats up. Right? And that's where that battle leads to is the creation of two political parties. So they're wrong almost instantly. Hmm. Um, but uh, we do uh, uh, certainly do have a sense in which we're not getting that balance that's going to come. I do think that many of the issues we get, we're going to talk about eventually will make their way to the Supreme Court and we might see the Supreme Court providing a little bit more balance than we're finding from Congress. Okay. Hector, you had a quick comment. Yeah, one of the things that's so interesting is I think that's absolutely true that the separation of powers breaks down when you have one party essentially in control of all the levers of the federal government. But one of the things that's really particularly interesting about the moment that we're living through is that one party that has that level of control is actually the less popular of the two parties. And Timothy Snyder, in his book On Tyranny, highlights this as a really important point for us to recognize, that that has certain consequences. It means that the party that's in control is going to be putting generally forward policies that do not have a majority of support behind them, and in some cases will have overwhelming opposition to them. Um, And in that case, the threat becomes that that party in power will perhaps fear democracy uh, and actually try to undermine it because democracy actually doesn't work uh, with respect to it and maintaining its, its own power. Um, and so in many ways, we are in sort of a gray zone in terms of the, the separation of powers. This particular situation was certainly never envisioned. Okay. We'll, we'll come back to that uh, when we broaden out to some of these issues about what a, the next election. Uh, I thought we'd start by talking about one of the issues that's come up recently before the Supreme Court, the travel ban. Uh, Hector, would you give us a primer a bit on where that stands and what's next in the courts? So there were two uh, cases that were brought to challenge the second iteration of the travel ban, and they both essentially blocked it. Uh, And the administration sought review in the Supreme Court uh, of the rulings that were issued in both cases, and the Supreme Court essentially said, we agree to hear this case. Until we hear it, we're going to allow pieces of it to go into effect. Um, And as long as a person has a bona fide relationship to the United States, they can continue to travel to uh, the United States or seek refuge in the United States. And what's been happening in the last several weeks is you've seen some rulings that have attempted to clarify what that bona fide relationship is. The administration has taken the position that a bona fide relationship exists only for immediate family members and in-laws. Uh, And just this past week, uh, if you can believe it, a federal panel of uh, appellate uh, judges were actually forced to uh, declare that grandparents and cousins actually are bona fide family relations as well. So just to clarify, this is the ban that says seven people from seven Muslim nations. Uh, Six. Six Six now. From seven to six in the second ban. And uh, cannot access, cannot come into the United States unless they have a first degree relationship on a Friday. And they decided randomly, it seems, that in-laws can qualify, but grandparents cannot. Yes. And you're saying the court said that's silly. 
Yes, the Ninth Circuit just said that about a week ago. And so what happens now is it'll go back to the Supreme Court? So the, this is essentially uh, has been arguments over what the, ninth, uh, what the Supreme Court said when it allowed portions of it to go into effect. So these lower courts have been trying to interpret what the Supreme Court intended. It will be heard by the Supreme Court in October. Uh, and it could decide, I suppose, that these lower courts have been wrong in how they've been interpreting it. Uh, but they're going to get that final say, as, as, as Professor Winkler said. This is one of those first situations where the Supreme Court will finally weigh in on a, on a Trump policy. So, should I be calling you Professor Winkler instead of Adam? Call me Adam. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, That's okay. Do you think it's unconstitutional? What well, will the court find? So, this is actually, there's actually a really interesting legal question, series of legal questions behind the travel ban um, in terms of whether it's constitutional or not, uh, or whether it's even authorized by statute. Um, uh, the Supreme Court has said that Congress has very, very broad discretion over the rules of immigration. Uh, plenary power over the rules of immigration and Congress can delegate that power as they've done in the case of control over the borders to the president and there's a statute in place that says that the president has broad authority to deny entry to any aliens or class of aliens that he deems detrimental to uh, the interests of the United States and that's a very very broad authority the question is are there nonetheless limits to that authority from the Constitution so the Constitution as a general matter is a limit on what government can do and one question here is whether the Equal Protection Clause, or in this case the Due Process Clause and its implied principle of equality, um, limits the reasons why the President can deny entry and limits the reasons why how Congress can control entry. And the big issue is whether you can do so on the basis of discrimination, on the basis of religion. Is that a valid basis to keep people from uh, coming into the country? Um, and so it's, it's going to be a really interesting question. The Supreme Court's never decided that question. It's an issue that just hasn't come up because there hasn't been uh, acts of discrimination at the border in the last 20, 30 years that focused on religion. Back in the day, we probably saw plenty of them. Uh, plenty of the relatives of people in this room probably were victims of some discrimination on the border uh, uh, on the basis of, uh, uh, of religion too. But I think it's important to get a sense of what's left of the travel ban. We keep talking about the travel ban if it's the same thing. The first travel ban that went in place barred uh, anyone from these seven countries co to come into the United States. If they, it doesn't matter what their legal status was, they weren't allowed to come into the United States. So if they had a green card and were living in the United States and had gone home to uh, uh, one of the countries in the Middle East for Christmas break uh, and had tried to come back, they wouldn't be able to come back in the country, even though their whole lives are here and they have a green card, a legal right to be here. Um, and it applied to people who had visas and it applied to just everybody uh, and from those countries. Uh, and there were all these protests at the airports, very, very active protests. People really rose up and said, this is wrong. And they issued a new executive order that's much more limited. So if I can use this doily here for a second, maybe I'm going to use a little prop, always a dangerous thing for uh, <laughs> educational purposes. But if we take this as the universe of people who were banned by the first first executive order on the travel ban, all the people who couldn't get in the country because of it. The second executive order was about cut in half, right? Because the second executive order, he was forced to respond after losing in court, and it said, okay, well, well the second one said, we'll let people who have green cards and have visas uh, in the country. Um, then the courts have now limited that again to about here. Uh, and it still implies, it still has a limitation on some refugees. But now, it's, if you have a green card from those countries, you can come in. If you have a visa from those countries, you can come in. Uh, and you can be still considered for your application if you have some close relationship uh, with the family. It could even be about here. 
uh, in terms of the universe of people who are now banned from it. It basically is now, it still hurts refugees who are trying to get into the country, um, and, and that's probably the biggest impact from that policy. Uh, but the other people, you're now talking about people in one of these Middle East countries who had no connection to the United States, no visa, and no green card. They weren't getting into the United States anyway very easily. <laughs> let's be honest. Right? It's very difficult to get into the United States from those countries to begin with. So I think that we talk about the travel ban. The travel ban now, we have already and the, I should say the ACLU has already succeeded in taking the travel ban and leading it to this. And so, well, I don't know who's going to win at the end of the day. There's some difficult questions. <laughs> yeah. I think there's some difficult legal questions about what's going to happen with this little piece of the doily. Um, but we can already see that the Trump administration's travel ban has been cut back very severely. Uh, and we shouldn't be fooled by whatever happens next as being, I mean, he's already lost this uh, for, for all intents and purposes. Interesting. And Hector, just there were a couple things you've mentioned before about the travel ban. First of all, that you think the timing, it, it might have timed out in a sense. And would you also address how Trump's tweets interact with this legal process? It, it's, such a, it's such a great point. Uh, I, I don't know that we ever thought that tweets would have legal significance, but this is where we are now. Uh, but let me talk about the timing issue first, because it's very interesting that when the first travel ban was issued uh, in uh, late January, uh, it asked for a halt of travel from seven countries for 90 days uh, while the U.S. government developed uh, extreme vetting procedures for travelers from these countries to make sure that it was safe to allow their entry, their passage into the United States. Um, we're now in September, um, so eight months have passed uh, and even if you go to the second travel ban, the second travel ban was issued in March, I believe. Uh, so if you go three months after the second one was issued, clearly the 90 days have already lapsed. Um, and in fact, in his tweets, the president has said, has boasted that the extreme vetting is already in effect. So there's a legitimate argument to be made here that he's already admitted that the purpose for which the ban, the temporary halt, was put in place has already been satisfied and there's actually no need for this case to go forward. And I think a lot of people have read into what the Supreme Court did in not hearing it last term and sort of holding it over for next term that maybe it wanted the case to become moot by the time it was heard in October. And with regards to his tweets, too, what's so important about his tweets, so one of those questions is, are, is, this, uh, is this temporary halt uh, on the basis of, uh, uh, motivated by religious discrimination? Right? And the question about whether it's motivated by that in a discriminatory intent or not, it's kind of difficult. Like he's not, you know, uh, to, to determine that as a matter of evidence. And, and the idea of these tweets is that courts have cited his tweets to show that he was motivated by religious animus, by a desire to discriminate on the basis of religion, because he keeps saying it in his tweet. The lawyers are in court saying this is not on the basis of religion. This is a national security issue. has nothing to do with religion. Uh, and he's tweeting... Don't listen to my lawyers. This is about religion. <laughs> <laughs> and so it happens, of course, have cited his tweets. And some people say, well, you shouldn't be citing his tweets. I mean, but the truth is you're trying to figure out what his motive is. And the tweets are a pretty good reflection of what he's thinking. And, uh, and so what we've seen is it's an unusual thing. You've never seen president's tweets cited in briefs before. Um, but uh, I think, you know, it's part of the new normal in the Trump years. I, that's a perfect opportunity to move to the next topic, uh, which is 
the president's move to ban transgender people from the military, which was announced via tweet. Uh, and he announced that he will be enacting this ban. Transgenders will no longer be welcome in our military. Immediately after that, within, I, was it a day or two, the military announced that we are actually not doing that. Uh, we are going to institute a process to study whether or not this is appropriate and how we should roll it out. Uh, I'd like to, we'll get to in a moment whether that will uphold, will stand up in the Supreme Court. Um, but was that a, almost a constitutional crisis in that moment? I mean, it kind of highlighted to me that the military could be willing to resist a president. And there are times that the military is supposed to resist the president. Um, First of all, isn't, what's the duty of the military if they think they're getting an unlawful order? Well, I mean, look, as a general matter that we want civilian control over the military. That's a very basic principle of American governance going back to the founding era, right? We owe George Washington a lot of thanks for giving up his general duties and, and making the civilian leadership uh, powerful over the military. And we want that. We obviously don't want mili the mili military to follow uh, illegal or unconstitutional orders. Uh, we want people to be willing to stand up at that point. Uh, but um, I think what we had really here was a situation where he announces a policy by tweet but, you know, we have procedures in government in America, and you can't just change the law by sending out a tweet. Like there is actually military, but there's rules and regulations that we have in place for how you can adopt one of these policies. Uh, and you have to go through a process, in this case, maybe some notice and comment. Uh, and you have to actually, you know, go through a certain legal procedure. It's kind of like if you were to stand up and say, I've just repealed Obamacare. Well, you can say that, but he's still got to pass a law through Congress. It's got to go through both houses and then present it to the president. He's got to sign it, right? Um, but we sort of have the situation where, where he's announcing something, but it hasn't gone through the procedures to go through. And what we're seeing now is actually the military, I don't think they were really resisting him in this case. I think they were following the law. There hadn't been a formal policy change yet, and so they said we're not going to go ahead and do it. One of the things that's interesting, though, is that there has never been a Supreme Court case on discrimination against transgender people. And so we don't know how courts will approach this kind of discrimination and whether uh, they'll let the military in particular discriminate on, on these grounds. I think we have a long way to go before we determine that. But it really is, in many ways, an open question about the, the extent of transgender rights against discrimination. You know, we, we had a lot of people contacting us and say, you know, the day that the Muslim ban was issued, the ACLU went into court and filed lawsuits. Why did the ACLU not rush into court uh, over these tweets? And it was precisely this, that that tweet did not change policy in, in one iota. Uh, he announced that he would like to change in the future policy, but he hadn't actually done anything via his tweet. Except the tweet did say, I am lift, I am, transgenders will no longer serve in the military, and that would seem to be a command from the commander-in-chief. Isn't this a sort of a gray, is this potentially a gray area? It's not really a gray area. There's policies in place for, for regulating uh, the, how the president goes about, uh, how, how they set policy for admission for military service personnel. And so you have to adopt the policy through a regular means. I mean, if this were 
uh, a command in the context of combat, I think we might think of it a little bit differently. If we're in war and he's saying, you know, take the Western Front, and the generals are saying, well, let's go through the uh, Administrative Procedures (laughs) Act before we take the Western Front, that's not going to happen. But this is really, we're in a time of peace. This is not, I don't think it's really a constitutional conflict, a crisis yet, but will probably be a conflict because it does seem like the policy, um, it hasn't quite moved forward. Again, he announced that we're going to do it and they've pushed for the the reform through the appropriate procedures and the military is currently going through a study right now to determine whether uh, to uh, kick transgender people out of the military. And the politics of it, apart from the constitutional side, it seemed to be that they could come to some agreement whereby people who are currently serving and transgender are allowed to stay, um, but the president chooses to enact a ban on transgender individuals in the future serving, and that would go to the Supreme Court, I imagine. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you would defend them as it's a due process violation? Yes. So, uh, uh, as Adam said, there are limits on what the government can do, and one of the key limits uh, is in the Bill of Rights, uh, and specifically the Fifth Amendment, uh, the protection of due process, and implied into that is the idea of equal protection, that you can't discriminate against people on on certain protected uh, bases. Um, and here the argument would be that this is essentially sexual discrimination, gendered uh, discrimination. Let's take a moment to just touch on DACA because it's so prevalent in the news right now. Um, it was Diane Feinstein, a Democrat from California, the s- center of the resistance, they say, who uh, actually said that DACA is on, quote, shaky legal ground. Um, is she right? I don't think so. Uh, I think it's really clear if you look at what actually happened. Uh, a district court in Texas uh, declared that it was unconstitutional. Uh, you had the Fifth Circuit, uh, I believe, uh, upheld that order. Uh, it went to the Supreme Court, and we didn't get a conclusive ruling uh, because we only had uh, eight justices on the court at that time. Uh, so we didn't have that fifth vote to declare uh, conclusively uh, whether it was valid or not. Uh, and one of the things I think that is really critical to understand is how common the idea of prosecutorial discretion is uh, in our system. And prosecutors constantly have to make decisions about whether they're going to invest their time and resources to carry a prosecution forward or not. On here, essentially what the president, President Obama, declared is there's a certain category of folks, of immigrants in this country, that even if they become enmeshed in our deportation system, we're not going to pursue deportation against them. And I know that some people think that that's um, a violation of the law, that he's ignoring the law by saying that. But one thing you should understand is that Congress has only appropriated sufficient resources to deport about 400,000 people a year. So even if you rounded up 11 million people today, you could only deport 400,000 of them because you only have so much invested in the judicial immigration system to provide them the process that they're entitled to and determine whether they have a right to remain in the country or not. And so essentially what the president said is these are not among the priority uh, enforcement uh, actions that we should be taking. Once the president made that declaration, all the other benefits that were accorded to DACA um, uh, uh, young people 
fall naturally from federal law. Because if you are, uh, if there is deferred action against you, you are entitled to a work authorization. You're entitled to this, you're entitled to that. And so essentially the question is, does the, does the president, does the prosecutor have this kind of discretion? And presidents have exercised this for years. Uh, so at some level, uh, it's been made into what looks like a very serious constitutional issue. I don't think it's as serious as, as folks have made it out to be. Yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll disagree a little bit with Hector. I mean, I think he's right at the end of the day that it's, uh, uh, it's within the bounds of the law. But uh, the prosecutorial discretion here, what's unusual is that you've set up a, not just a, an announcement or a policy that we're not going to prosecute um, people who don't have any felonies or who don't get, get in any serious, have any serious misdemeanors, but actually creating a policy where you get um, uh, uh, the work authorization for two years uh, and a kind of dependability. Uh, I don't think that's, at the end of the day, wholly problematic, but it does, there's elements of this that seems more like policy and lawmaking than it does just prosecutorial discretion because it's a very formalized system and you can apply for it. You get a renewable two-year deferred action, which means you can get your work permit uh, and you won't be uh, deported as long as you don't have any felonies or serious misdemeanors. And, and it becomes more like a, a serious policy. I will say, at the, uh, and it does affect a lot of people, it's about 800,000 people who are affected by this policy, so it has a big impact on, uh, on people's lives. One thing about it, though, uh, puts a little, for me a little perspective on, on what Trump's done, is that Obama's policy had been put on hold. I mean, it was not going anywhere. Uh, and the Trump administration was never going to take this policy and push it uh, and really protect uh, these people. So uh, I, I think that uh, maybe it's good in the long run if it goes back to Congress. The problem with one of the problems with the way Obama did it was, you know, just doing it through the executive branch. It meant that the next executive, when in the hands of a different executive with different policies, can rescind it and was able to rescind it. Uh, whereas if Congress passes it, you'll definitely have stronger legislation. I think it's odd to take a policy and say, okay, we're going to throw it away. Congress enact the exact same policy. But there might be one, if that ultimately happens, it'll be a more durable law that provides better protections for immigrants in, uh, in the long run. Um, so it may have a silver lining. Right. I can say as somebody who covered Washington for 10 years that there's no question the culprit in the immigration dramas we're facing right now is Congress and their failure to enact a, a immigration policy that can be instituted for the 11 million people here. So if it, if it begins that process, it'd be super productive for the country. And, and that's always one of the things when somebody disagrees with the substance of a decision and they don't want to necessarily... Um, out themselves as being against the substance of it, they argue about the process. And right. I wonder if the president hasn't found a very elegant way of saying, look, I'm going to throw this to Congress, but I'm really agnostic about whether DACA is legal or not. My problem isn't with DACA itself, but how it was enacted. Uh, and as you say, I, I don't have a lot of hope given the track record of Congress on immigration reform. We'll see. Let's... <laughs> I mean, maybe it'll be the Nixon and China moment. Who knows? <laughs> Anything's possible. Uh, I think we should move into some of the bigger questions that are uh, swirling in the Capitol these days. Uh, and I don't. I want to broach this and be very clear. I'm not saying this in a partisan way. Whatever your politics, you must be aware that there's a lot of talk of uh, what would it take to impeach Donald Trump? Does he? What is the Emoluments Clause? What is the 25th Amendment? And this seems like a good opportunity to have a really smart discussion, so you're informed even if you're uh, a big fan of Donald Trump's. So uh, let's, <laughs> let's have that conversation. Um, what does it take to impeach a president? 
Well, um, uh, Article 2 of the Constitution sets forth a procedure to impeach and remove the president. We talk about impeachment, but we should always add the words and remove. Because uh, actually impeaching a president does nothing except cause controversy. Impeaching and removing a president actually removes a president. <laughs> um, uh, and so for, for some perspective, you might think of it as impeachment as like a criminal indictment. Your fa- you, charges have been leveled against you. So that's what happened to Bill Clinton. He was impeached. The House, by a simple majority vote under Article 2, can impeach uh, any uh, government officer uh, for a variety of reasons, including most pointedly high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, there's no single definition of what counts as a high crime or misdemeanor. That's kind of a political idea, a political question. Can I just ask you to emphasize that for one moment? So the Congress could vote to that a high crime and misdemeanor has been committed for... For sending out a tweet that they didn't like, to put it in Trump perspective. (laughs) Uh, I mean, arguably. I mean, because it's it's such a political process, no court's going to step in and say, you know what, that's not really a high crime. It is not a court of law. There's none of the... Not likely to have that. But in any case, but but, but it's mostly a political process. And because it's a political process, you're not going to get someone impeached for virtually no reason, but there will be political reasons behind it at all times. So there's no, like, uh, laundry list that you can look at what counts as a high crime, a misdemeanor. There has been a lot of controversy over one particular crime which is whether obstruction of justice can be a high crime misdemeanor. Many of you may know that Alan Dershowitz, a very well-known legal commentator of Jewish background, uh, has been out there saying that a president cannot be impeached for obstruction of justice. And citing some of the the language that Hector has used here today, the president has prosecutorial discretion over who to prosecute. And if the president decides we're not going to prosecute anyone in this Russia controversy, that's the president's... uh, president can make that decision. He gets that prosecutorial discretion. So he can't really obstruct justice by firing uh, Comey. Uh, I should note that um, Bill Clinton was impeached on uh, obstruction of justice grounds, so he actually was successfully impeached on that ground. Uh, Richard Nixon was also facing an impeachment charge uh, for obstruction of justice, so it seems uh, past practice has seemed to have answered that question in favor of obstruction of justice. But if you get, uh, if if the House were to impeach the President with, uh, just takes a majority vote, then it goes to the Senate. The Senate is where you have your removal trial, where you have your trial. That's what happened to Bill Clinton, and you need two-thirds vote in the Senate to remove. Uh, And as you know, Bill Clinton was not removed. The majority voted to support uh, various grounds of impeachment, but not a two-thirds majority, so uh, he uh, retained his position. Right now, you would need 19 Republican senators to vote to remove the President of the United States. that seems far-fetched at this stage. Um, it's hard to get one or two, hard to get more than two or three to even vote against his policy proposals, much less 19 <laughs> are going to vote to remove him from office entirely. Um, but who knows what evidence comes up? You never know how, I mean, there's clearly a lot of scandals going around and investigations that are going on and being obstructed with. So we'll have to just see how it goes. Now, help us understand, Hector, how this is distinct from the Mueller investigation. Uh, that is, as I understand it, it's a, it's a criminal investigation, yes. uh, and that's separate from what Adam described is the political process of impeachment. Yes, so the, the political process of impeachment deals with the president in his office as president. Uh, the Mueller investigation is literally uh, violations of criminal laws, uh, federal criminal laws, 
uh, and it's about whether he can be charged and potentially uh, sentenced under those laws. And there are some folks who think that there is a real question uh, and perhaps even a prohibition against filing criminal charges against a sitting president. Even filing charges? Yeah, there are some people who take that position that it is prohibited. Now, Paula Jones sir, uh, sued Bill Clinton when he was president, so, but that was a civil case? That was a civil case, and there was an argument made there uh, that allowing that case to move forward would distract the president in carrying out his duties, and there was a request made to essentially hold that case in abeyance until his term was finished, um, and that was not allowed to happen. That case was allowed to move forward. So could that be used as precedent to argue the president could be criminally prosecuted? Or it's I, I think you're going to have a separate uh, sort of uh, analysis here. Uh, applied as to whether this could happen or not. Uh, you know, the, the Nixon analogies, I think, are, are uh, often uh, thrown about. Here, they're particularly relevant. Uh, when Leon Jaworski was looking at uh, his grand jury, uh, he debated whether or not President Nixon could be indicted. He decided that he could not, or perhaps that he should not be. And so when the indictments were issued against the uh, uh, the plumbers and others who were involved in the burglary and the cover-up, Nixon was named as an unindicted co-conspirator. And the House investigators were, were informed of that. Essentially, he wanted it to play out politically, not criminally. Mm. Uh, but there are folks who believe that Leon Jaworski maybe uh, didn't pursue this as aggressively as he could have and that you could actually see criminal charges filed. Jaworski was the Mueller of his day. The Mueller of his day. So if Mueller, let's say he has, comes to a conclusion and he does find what he believes is wrongdoing, there's two tracks. One is he could take it and argue there's criminal prosecution. And another track is I'm going to deliver this to Congress and see if they want to act on this. Correct. Impeach. Okay. If they go the criminal prosecution route, can the president pardon himself? <laughs> uh, when the prospect of the president pardoning himself came up, I became very popular on my Facebook feed <laughs> that, that <laughs> night <laughs> uh, and quickly had to, to well, scramble. I should follow you. We're all <laughs> going to gonna follow Hector now. <laughs> uh, some answers, and it's, it's a very interesting question. Uh, there are some folks who say that the president's power is essentially unlimited. Uh, there are other folks who say that if the power were unlimited, that you would essentially destroy the rule of law because the president would now be above the law. The president could run out and shoot somebody and kill them and then pardon himself. And so he would now be able to essentially engage in murder with impunity. Um, and there are folks who argued during the time of Nixon that Nixon did not have the power to pardon himself. He actually did not exercise, obviously, that power to pardon himself. And he actually didn't pardon some of his uh, uh, staffers who were begging up until the night <laughs> that he declared uh, that he would be resigning, asking for him to pardon, and he thought it was inappropriate. Uh, I, I think that one scenario that could play out, which I think is particularly interesting, is if the president pardons himself, that is not necessarily the end of the story. Somebody could still come in and charge him, Mueller uh, or Schneiderman in New York, let's say, and what could happen is you could test the validity of the pardon. Mm. It would have to be then litigated. Essentially, say Mueller brings charges. The president comes in and says, no, no, no. My defense to these charges is I have pardoned myself. Mueller says, yes, you did, but that pardon is invalid. The courts would then have to rule on it. 
Um, so again, I think this is a situation where you've got an incredibly serious potential constitutional conflict, um, but it would get routed back into the judicial system very quickly um, if, if he were to play it out that way. Adam, I think just my observation, the fact that he pardoned Arpaio suggests to me that Trump is going to be a little more friendly to the pardon than some other presidents we've seen. And... Um, would, does he have the capacity to pre-pardon people? For example, if Manafort <laughs> is being called in to testify against him, or Flynn, or Kushner, could he pre-pardon them? Uh, yes. Yeah, they, that, that's, actually a, that's actually an easy question. Uh, the question of whether he can pardon himself is a hard one because no one's ever tried it before, <laughs> right? So we don't have any court cases on it before. Um, but we do know that actually it's very t uh, pretty standard as a pardon to pardon someone from future criminal uh, uh, charges relating to a particular set of events. In fact, Richard Nixon was pardoned by Gerald Ford um, uh, even though he had not been indicted on any uh, charges. He had been an unnamed co-conspirator, um, but uh, had uh, basically Gerald Ford preemptively uh, pardon someone, uh, pardon Nixon, so he wouldn't have. So that's not unusual. You do that. That's part of uh, the pardon power. I guess uh, if I wanted to be the devil's advocate for Hector, I actually think that uh, it's very problematic to think that the president could be indicted criminally while he's sitting in office. Really? Well, the Supreme Court said in the case that you mentioned, the Paula Jones case, that, uh, that the president could be subject to civil suit. And the logic that the court uh, offered was that the president would not be terribly distracted by the civil suit. If there's any Supreme Court opinion that's been proven wrong, it's that one, right? That, that the, the actual case that they approved sidetracked the entire second term of President Clinton's presidency, led to impeachment charges uh, against him, uh, and completely side-derailed the presidency. Uh, think of what criminal charges would do. Uh, criminal charges would be much more serious for the president to focus on than civil charges, right? So I think the idea that the president uh, could be subject to uh, criminal indictment and be distracted from his work is highly problematic, and you could really see this being used in the future for political purposes. I know you might say now, well, I'm not a Trump fan, and I think he's doing the wrong things. But, you know, if the president can be indicted, uh, he can be indicted by state officials. So uh, uh, you imagine the next Democratic president would face serious uh, criminal charges, even if they were just made up or on a frivolous grounds, um, because it might be used as a political tool. Uh, there is a rule of law issue here, but I think what we probably should have happened in the civil suit that faced Bill Clinton is that it should have been delayed until after he was finished with his presidency. Um, and there's always, of course, uh, the possibility of impeachment. If the president goes out on the street and shoots someone, well, that's a high crime and misdemeanor, and God hope we're going to have Congress step up in outrage and say we're not going to allow this to happen. Hopefully, if we see evidence that there's been collusion with the Russians to sway an American election, Congress will rise up and do something about it. I'm pessimistic uh, from what we're seeing, but nonetheless, there are some remedies other than that. And it's not just that the president will be lawless and above the law, but there might be some temporary hold on the law so the president can go about doing what the president's charged with doing. Quick follow-up on that. If he were to be reelected, so it's eight years down the line, six years down the line, is, does the statute of limitations expire and he can no longer be charged? Well, you would toll the statute of limitations in this setting. Uh -huh. you told the sta any statute of limitations would be told by the court saying, look, you cannot bring these charges yet, but everything will be put in place. 
uh, and, and wait. And there's some, there's some downsides to it, too. I don't want to say that that's a perfect solution. Witnesses can forget what they said or witnesses can die and things can happen. But, uh, but I think that would be a better approach than to subject the president to criminal indictment when you could be criminally indicted by any district attorney or prosecutor in the entire country. Uh, it could really lead to a political uh, uh, bad situation. So, Okay, I'm going to ask you all one more question, but I, I want to let you know that it's time for us to turn it all over to you. Um, I think, how are we doing this? Um, we're collecting cards, and Rabbi Nick will ask the first question. Okay, so you all, I think, have cards? That if you have any questions, in. write them down on have the cards. You been, okay, so they're handing out cards right now. And if you want to write down your question uh, while we're talking, we'll collect them and start asking. And while they're doing that, maybe we can talk about the 25th. The 25th Amendment essentially says if the president loses his marbles, basically <laughs> his cabinet can say, you're out of here, and so can the vice president. Has that ever happened? Uh... It, it has been invoked um, for short periods when the president has been subjected to medical procedures, uh. um, and it's been not contested. And it's been for very short periods for a colonoscopy here or an examination there. Meaning, te- like, for right now, the vice president's in charge. Essentially. But, okay. Um, but this situation that you're detailing is a much more serious situation where essentially there's a determination among some people that the president is incapacitated. If the vice president and a majority of the cabinet in writing state uh, that that's true, uh, then uh, the president essentially could, could be uh, substituted for by the vice president. Uh, if the president were to contest then it gets fought out in Congress and you would need two-thirds of Congress to essentially enforce the removal of the president. Uh, this has never happened and we were just talking earlier what an incredible book or movie this yeah. would make because imagine what the country would look like for those three or four weeks where you have a president and a vice president essentially vying for the presidency mm-hmm. um, over an argument that the president is incapacitated. And if he were to be incapacitated in this fantastical scenario played out, he would be removed from office. That's my understanding. Yeah, that's right. The power would devolve to the vice president. Um, And it's a complicated process that you go through, and uh, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. But, um, you know, uh, he's he's done such a good job offending virtually every member of the cabinet. (laughs) Could start adding them up. (laughs) Some are thinking, well, given the chance, I'm going to take that vote. I don't know. But is it a detailed process? It's a multi-week process? It is. It's like a three-week process. I mean, it could happen quicker, but basically the Constitution Act says a very, it's very detailed provision, the 25th Amendment, about, and it says what the Vice President and the half of the Cabinet get together and, and they decide the President's incapacitated. They shall immediately assume the powers of the President, it can transmit a, a message to Congress, uh, and then the President can respond, transmit his own message to Congress, and then the power goes back to him. Oh, wow. And then the Vice President and the Congress and the Cabinet get to meet again, and then they decide whether to send a message back to Congress again, <laughs> and if they do, then Congress has three weeks to decide it. Oh, um, wow. And so, like I said, Hector's right. I mean, Hector's got, I mean, I think Hector's in the wrong business. He should be right. writing scripts. <laughs> but, uh, Any screenwriters in the house? <laughs> Talk to Adam. Okay, we have a bunch of questions. Okay. Where's the re- hi, so, Rabbi. hi. Thank you all so much for coming. I appreciate our panelists, our moderator, for coming and sharing some of your perspective on all of these matters. It's been a fascinating conversation to hear. Um, I wanted to ask, 
We've heard some about transgender service in the military, about DACA, about the travel ban, um, and then the possibilities of Russia investigation. Are there other issues that you're hearing about or seeing based on political agendas or rhetoric or whatever that you could see that could possibly spur in the future um, either a severe constitutional uh, conflict or crisis? I want to hold that distinction that you drew early on. So thank you. Thank you. Adam, you want to go first? I would say, I mean, there are some. I mean, I think a, one, a big issue that's sort of arisen is the emoluments clauses and whether the president is in violation of these sort of esoteric provisions of the, or they seemed esoteric for a long time, provisions of the Constitution that prohibit the president from gaining, getting gifts or emoluments or additional salary from foreign countries or from uh, additional domestic sources over and above his congressional salary. Uh, and that's what those emoluments clauses do. They basically pro prohibit you from getting extra gifts or salary. Um, and there are some serious questions about whether Trump's continuing business operations are in violation of the emoluments clause. Um, uh, we know that Trump International Hotel uh, has raised their rates 60% uh, from the original prospectus since he was uh, elected. Uh, they're getting a tremendous amount of foreign business. Uh, and foreign business is not a, in itself an emoluments, but if it's from a foreign government, then it is an emoluments clause problem. And there have been foreign governments that have rented rooms uh, and rented uh, party spaces. That could be, I think that's a potential constitutional crisis in this sense. There's not a lot of law on the emoluments clauses because there hasn't been a president with this kind of business interest, uh, this extent of business interest before. And, you, I, and I think Trump really cares about his business. I mean, um, maybe more than almost anything else, right? Like that's what he really cares about. And you could see if the courts were to declare that these are unlawful emoluments, he wouldn't be removed from office because the law is unclear. You're not going to hold it against him. Well, you might hold it against him, but he's not going to be removed for uh, violating the emoluments clause uh, when it's so unclear. But you could have a court ruling ordering him to uh, cease uh, accepting emoluments from foreign entities and him not obeying it. Like, I don't see a constitutional crisis about what he does on the travel ban. I don't think he's going to reject a Supreme Court order on what he does on the travel ban. He might reject a Supreme Court order saying stop doing business with foreign governments because he really cares about his business. Uh, and you could see a constitutional crisis arising out of that, perhaps. Uh, but, you know, the truth is, is there's so many issues that seem to arise. Uh, uh, there are continuing issues. There's Title IX issues that are going to be pretty scandalous uh, in terms of uh, curtailing some of the du uh, curtailing the Obama-era guidance on Title IX. I don't think it's going to... It might be a, a constitutional uh, conflict, but not quite a crisis. I, uh, I'm going to borrow from Chekhov. You know, he said that if you see a gun in the first act hanging on the wall, you know it's going to go off in the second act. Right. Hey, uh, so <laughs> I mentioned Timothy Snyder and this idea that if the one party that controls the levers of the government is actually the less popular of the two, that it will fear democracy and perhaps even try to undermine it. Um, I don't know that it will rise to a constitutional crisis, but I think it will be of that magnitude. Uh, what the president is doing with his voter integrity uh, commission is very frightening. Uh, you know, in the last 15, 20 years, maybe a little longer, uh, voting seemingly has become a very partisan issue. Um, you know, when you look at the states that are enacting strict voter ID requirements, that are eliminating early voting, uh, uh, they typically are controlled by Republicans. And, you know, I say that as a representative of a nonpartisan organization. I'm stating a fact <laughs> when I say that. Uh, 
what the committee, what the commission is looking to do, uh, would make what's what we've experienced in the last 15 to 20 years look like child's play, because it wouldn't be limited to a handful of swing states. Uh, it would be nationwide, and it would be really uh, across the board and very dramatic. Uh, Chris Kobach is the Secretary of State of Kansas, and he's one of the key architects of this uh, commission. And his, his one goal in life seems to be to suppress the vote. Uh, and one of the things that he's talking about is this idea of essentially scrubbing voter rolls if folks didn't ro- vote in the midterm elections. Uh, essentially developing almost a presumption that if you didn't vote in that election, that you're probably not going to vote in the next one. Uh, that is a very um, calculated uh, decision uh, to attempt to rig the electorate. When you look at who votes in midterm elections, it uh, tends to be a much uh, older demographic, uh, uh, much less diverse, uh, and much more conservative. Uh, and essentially what you'd be forcing people to do who had been unregistered is you'd force them to go through the difficulty of re-registering. Um, and why are you doing that, <laughs> other than to prevent certain people from voting? Uh, and I'm very, very frightened of what that commission is, is doing and what it could do, because so much of its work, at least so far, has been really under the radar. Um, it hasn't caught the public imagination in the same way that the travel ban or uh, the transgender ban uh, or, or all of these other issues have. Uh, and this is one place where um, I fear that this is not driven by an incompetent person. Uh, Kobach knows what he's doing and how he's going to try to accomplish it. Uh, so I'm very worried about that one. A brief follow-up on that. There's, you know, given the anxiety about the in, uh, uncertainty of our election, our, uh, our next election, um, Is it feasible that an executive could say, we cannot trust our voting system, we cannot trust these voting machines, I'm going to suspend the election? Do we have a provision to stop that? No. I mean, we have a a constitution that um, uh, uh, there's, there there is, you know, there may be legislation on this that speaks to um, elections in the event of emergencies that I'm not aware of. but it seems, I think it's very highly unlikely that that's the, the situation that we're going to confront. Because there's just, while there's going to be some support for such moves that we've seen in polling results that there might be support, uh, I, I just don't think you're going to see both political parties just stand idly by while that happens. So I'm, uh, not, I'm not as afraid of the going nuclear. He's going to say there's no elections anymore. Um, uh, I, just don't, I just think that's just too far-fetched. But, but then again, hey... I thought. <laughs> what did the polling say? Shocked every day. Forty percent of his base is for that. Was the polling that I saw? So who knows? Uh, but we have to find an actual poll. I don't know the citation on it. So uh, I heard that. I heard that. I should read that. To your uh, to your question, the scenario I hear most from people in Washington that they're concerned about is that the president should decide to launch nuclear weapons at a time that the military does not believe it's necessary or correct. And will they actually obey that order, which would be a crisis? Uh, going and, to and, and a really great historical footnote is as Watergate was nearing its end and as Nixon was becoming more and more unstable, 
uh, uh, drinking perhaps excessively and not thinking all that clearly, his Secretary of Defense issued an order that if Nixon were to uh, engage launch codes or attempt to declare war, that any such order get routed either to him or to uh, Henry Kissinger and that they would deal with it. <laughs> but that was completely extra legal. Uh, that was them so worried about the president's mental state that they took that into their own, into their own hands. Amazing. I, I don't know if anybody has done anything like that currently. Uh, all right, moving into the cards. What do each of you think would happen if President Trump were impeached and refused to leave office? <laughs> it's a sit-in. He's like, I'm halfway through putting up this big Trump sign. And I'm like, oh, I can't leave now. Wait. Yeah, I just remodeled it up to my standards. Right, exactly. <laughs> I don't. I uh, yeah. Uh, he would not have the power of the president. The the vice president would become the president, uh, and uh, he he could be forcibly removed from the White House if he refused to leave. Although I have a feeling that he's not having a very good. No. I think like if he had an excuse to get out of Dodge and find himself back at Mar-a-Lago <laughs> playing golf all day, I think he would probably take it. So I don't think he's going to stick around. I'm with you on that. Okay, Hector, what is the legal definition of treason? And is that better defined than high crimes and misdemeanors? Uh, how hard would it be to prove that a president who colludes with a foreign government to undermine the U.S. election process is guilty of treason, if it were to be? Gosh, I, I don't know the technical definition. I believe it's aid to a uh, country that we're uh, an adversary, essentially. Aiding and abetting a foreign power? Yeah. Um, it must be a hostile foreign power. A hostile, I would assume that there would be some element of, uh, uh, you know, being at war, uh, that that would be part of it. Um, I, I really, I, I don't know. Uh, I think certainly that would, if that were to be the case, that would be a high crime or misdemeanor. Um, you know, if, if obstruction of justice would qualify, uh, there's no question that treason, that treason would. I think you could also see, by the way, in the audience that at least one thing that Trump's doing is forcing all his constitutional lawyers to study all these little provisions <laughs> of the Constitution we had never had to study before. And it's like, when did we have to worry about the president being a traitor? <laughs> I mean, it's not to say this president is, but we're asking questions that we've just never had to ask before. Um, I don't think I'd ever uh, uh, spent five seconds of my life thinking about the emoluments clause before never. this uh, president. <laughs> Uh, how can we overrule the president's rules regarding climate change since he is not accurately paying attention to real science? Well, that's, a, <laughs> that's a point of view. Uh, but uh, he, I mean, Congress, right? There's no... I think it's Congress. Um, and I think that uh, it's one area that highlights, I think, some of the beauties of our system. Uh, you know, so much of what we're trying to do at the federal level is essentially just block policies. But at the state level, particularly in a state like California, you can actually move the ball forward and you can show that progressive values actually can be enacted uh, and you can show that they actually work better uh, than, than any alternative. Uh, and I think that the governor and the, the state legislature here in California uh, deserve a, a measure of credit for saying, well, if the president won't do it, if the country's not going to do it, we can enact our own system. We can buy into the Paris Accords. And essentially, for our portion of the country, we can make sure that we are meeting those standards. I think other states can do the same. Uh, I think that's a very powerful um, 
uh, not just message, but given how big California is, I mean, we're essentially, what, one-sixth, one-seventh of the, the overall economy, uh, I'm sure we contribute disproportionately to climate change. So I think it's very powerful what we can do at the local level. In addition to that, I think we spend $36 billion as consumers a day. We can make choices about where we're spending our money and are those companies invested in fossil fuels and promoting that if, if that's an issue that matters. And that probably will have more power Absolutely. than or as much as any of this. Uh, Adam, to you, does Mueller have the authority to bring criminal charges or can he only recommend that the Justice Department do so? My understanding is that he can recommend that the Justice Department do so, and he can prepare a report for Congress uh, to inform the Congress. I um, don't know whether he can make any, uh, level any charges on his own. I don't believe so, but Hector may, may know otherwise. I don't. That sounds right to me, though. Yeah. The reporting I, I've read says no, that yeah, he does, recommend. but that yeah. once you recommend it to justice, they move, that it's as good as a action. Like, they're not going to, unlikely that they'd resist it. In this case, you know. I guess that's true. <laughs> what am I saying? <laughs> Nothing's knowable. Okay. Hector, um, to you, this is interesting. Different topic. Reconcile the ACLU's decision to support the neo-Nazi white supremacists' right to espouse their beliefs in Charlottesville. This is their deplorable beliefs in Charlottesville, followed by its retraction of that support. Mm. Uh this is, I think, probably the most difficult uh, question that we confront at the ACLU. Uh, and I think it's always been a really difficult question. Uh, I went back and actually watched some of the interviews with the attorneys in Illinois who represented the neo-Nazis in Skokie. Uh, and it's interesting that they talked about how agonizing and brutal uh, that process was and how they hoped it would never happen again um, uh, but here we are and I think that what you see is a real struggle to balance free speech uh, and equality uh, and uh, recognizing that these hateful ideologies uh, are very dangerous uh, if they get adopted as policy but when it comes to free speech, when it comes to the right to assembly, I think that we have to be really careful about what we do in this regard. It's very easy to say that this is a hateful ideology that has no legitimacy in our public discourse and therefore we're going to ban it or we're going to suppress it. It's very easy to say that and then it's very hard to actually apply that in practice in a way that doesn't then start to allow the suppression of speech that we might actually value and like a lot. There are a number of countries in Europe that have been very explicit in essentially allowing hate speech to be banned. And when you look at how it is played in practice, it has not been applied generally to right-wing ideologies. It's been applied generally to left-wing ideologies. Uh, and so I think we have to remember that. And so uh, what you saw in Charlottesville is I don't think a retraction of support uh, for the idea that free speech and free assembly belongs to everybody. But I think that what, you, what we were trying to communicate is that we saw something very different in Charlottesville from what we had seen historically. And to me, the images are, are very stark. You know, when, when I look at the images of the neo-Nazis in 1977, 
um, and we talk about the march in Skokie, but the march in Skokie actually never happened. Uh, but in our minds, it's fixed as if it happened. They never actually marched in Skokie. But they were dressed in their Nazi regalia, and they were going to march down the street, and then they were going to go home. What you saw in Charlottesville was literally militiamen with automatic weapons, with helmets, with clubs, with mace, uh, with camouflaged uniforms. I I saw a reporter, and to me it was really chilling, she said that she saw them first approaching from about eight blocks away, and she thought, it's the National Guard, good. When they got about a block away, she thought, oh my God. These are just uh, a group of people from upstate Tennessee or New York or Ohio or wherever that decided to come here. And uh, those insignias are not the insignias of the U.S. military or the National Guard. It's just a random militia. And so what we tried to say is we're going to respect the right to engage in free speech and, and assembly even when we hate what you're saying when we hate it with every fiber of our being. But we're not going to allow you to use the the mantle of the First Amendment to engage in violence. And if you want to come to a rally and come, uh, you know, armed to the teeth, um, you're not going to get our support. Um, Because there, uh, you're essentially gearing up, uh, ramping up for violence, and that's not what we've signed up for. Um, so what, that's the balance that we're trying to strike. I think it's a very delicate balance, a very difficult one. Um, and that's, that's where we've landed. And I think that, you know, sometimes I, I think if I wasn't a lawyer, I'd be a historian. I love going back and I love trying to see how people looked at it when these policies were first being established. And in 1934, the ACLU published a pamphlet, essentially, Why We Will Defend Nazis. And it explained, it made the case for why we would do this. But there's a paragraph in that pamphlet that is very nuanced and very telling that says, when their right to free speech and assembly interferes with the rights of others, that's where we draw the line. And that pamphlet actually says that we will not defend the right of Nazis to march in public with uh, guns. Really? Yes. In 1934, they said that. And in the same paragraph, and I think the two ideas are related, it says, we will defend the right of uh, KKK members to meet in private, and if they want to meet in private with their hoods on, they can do that. But if they want to march in public, they have to be unmasked, because the masking is a message of intimidation. It essentially says, you don't know who I am. I could be the sheriff, I could be the judge, I could be your teacher. Um, and we don't, uh, we, don't, we don't value that message of intimidation. So if you want to march in public, we're going to argue that should, you should be unmasked. Mm. And that, I think, is the kind of delicate balancing that we're trying to engage in, to respect the right to believe what you want to believe and to declare it publicly, but not to engage or incite violence. Interesting. What's so interesting is another question here is at Charlottesville, some alt-right protesters carried assault rifles to make a statement. Is this in conflict with the First Amendment? And I think you've just addressed that you feel it subtly is. Uh, Adam, to you, please address the constitutional issues related to campaign financing. That's a very broad Mm -hmm. issue, but is there a piece of that you'd like to tackle? 
Well, uh, a lot of people think about the case Citizens United uh, and this uh, important Supreme Court decision in 2010 that held that um, campaign finance laws that limited corporations from spending unlimited sums to try to influence elections uh, were unconstitutional. And as a result of that ruling and some uh, subsequent lower court rulings, uh, you've had the cap lifted on individuals as well. There's a restriction on how much you can give directly to a candidate, but virtually no restrictions now on what you can give to an organization that wants to, make, to take out ads to spend in favor of a candidate. Uh, and that's what's really happened as a result of Citizens United. It isn't even a story so much it's just about corporate power, but also how it unleashed individuals to give unlimited amounts. Um, the, the truth of the matter is campaign finance is an area where the Supreme Court over the last 20 years has really sort of doggedly pursued um, uh, 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 curtailing and rolling back campaign finance law in the name of the First Amendment. Uh, and uh, that's been the story uh, of the Supreme Court for, for quite some time now. Now what we have is a situation where the campaign finance laws don't do very much at all. Uh, they're not very effective. Uh, we could have good campaign finance laws, I think, but we're not going to get anything through this Congress passing effective campaign finance laws. Uh, and what we've seen is that many of the states that have been experimental have had the Supreme Court come and turn them away. So it's made it very difficult, uh, campaign finance. Campaign finance is an area where there's a, a vibrant debate out there for a constitutional amendment to allow campaign finance. It's been uh, pushed, uh, adopted by uh, or endorsed by 16 states. Uh, uh, what is the contour of it? What? It's a proposed 28th Amendment. There's actually a couple different contours. It hasn't been proposed by Congress and then subjected to the state for ratification, but 16 states have passed resolutions saying we should Same. amend the Constitution to overturn Citizens United and to allow reasonable regulation of campaign finance. Uh, but I don't think we're going to see, I think one thing we'll have in the Trump years is we're not going to see as many debates over campaign finance because Congress is just totally uninterested in adopting right. any new legislation at this point uh, to respond to campaign finance. So on Citizens United, which essentially says in layperson's terms, if corporations are people, they have the right to free speech. Can corporations be found guilty of murder if they're people? <laughs> yeah. yeah, corporations can be charged with crimes uh, and, and have been charged with crimes for a long time. I mean, this goes back, uh, you know, this goes 100 years old when Ted Ro Teddy Roosevelt, the historian, loves uh, historicals. So when Teddy Roosevelt brought those famous, was the first president to bring serious and aggressive antitrust prosecutions against Standard Oil and uh, the Sugar Trust and whatnot, um, American Tobacco Company, the big trust that controlled the tobacco industry, those companies went to court and said, we are like people. Um, you, you know, you shouldn't be able to charge us with crimes and we should have the protections of the Constitution against criminal uh, indictments of the Fourth and Fifth Amendment. Um, uh, and back then the Supreme Court decided that corporations could be charged with crimes, uh, but at the same time they gain constitutional rights and they have the same protections against uh, uh, unreasonable searches and seizures uh, uh, and various other criminal procedure mm -hmm. protections. So corporations are like people in the criminal justice system, but uh, obviously you're uh, uh, less likely to bring charges, these charges against corporations when it's not crystal clear that they actually, there was one person who was really deciding to murder someone. Can a president be indicted on a state charge and then prohibited from pardoning himself, Hector? <laughs> We're on a theme. Uh, this is one where I'm really limited to what I've been reading, uh, like many of you. 
that there is a limit to the federal uh, power to pardon that the president has, that he can't pardon himself from any state uh, violations. Um, so his pardon would only prevent, if it were effective, it would only prevent prosecutions for violations of federal law, not state law. And my understanding is, is that Mueller has been um, in communication and working with uh, the Attorney General in of New York. York. Um, we don't know why, what that's about, but people have speculated that, based on that news, that there uh, is awareness of this issue and a po- possibility that, um, uh, that New York will end up bringing criminal charges against the President. If Trump were to pardon some of his underlings, such as Flynn, Manafort, Kushner, he called them satellites, um, doesn't that also mean that they could no longer assert the Fifth Amendment and f- they'd be forced to testify against Trump and others? Yes. Yes. You have a, How do they force them? You've been pardoned from the offense, but you can still be charged with contempt of Congress or contempt of court. Oh, you could. He could keep providing, I guess, successive pardons. I guess at some point he could keep pardoning. The but, mirror within the mirror. Right. So they grant, he grants a pardon. Then, under the Fifth Amendment, you have a right not to testify, not not to incriminate yourself under the Fifth Amendment. Right. A right against self-incrimination. If you've gotten a pardon, well, then you cannot incriminate yourself, and you can be forced to testify. That's pretty standard uh, legal move. But you're right. I guess you could have this sort of uh, power where where they hold him in contempt and and they provide uh, a pardon. Uh, although I'm not sure that the pardon would be effective against a contempt of Congress proceeding. Again, no one studied but this. You know, <laughs> with the Arpaio, I mean, the I Ar- gotta stop doing these talks while Trump's president. <laughs> but doesn't the Arpaio pardon potentially create a precedent because Arpaio was pardoned for obstruction of justice, like obstruction of justice, and for contempt, contempt of a judicial order? Right. So he was forgiven contempt. Of another branch. Yeah. 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 So it could be... true. Right. I do think that if he were doing that, if he were pardoning people repeatedly to prevent them from providing testimony, that then Congress would have to start becoming awake to the... The, the reality of obstruction of justice. Th- this is where the legal and the political systems play into each other. Maybe he checkmates legally, but it then highlights the necessity of the political branch to do something. Um, and you can imagine what the price uh, that voters would extract would be uh, if the political branches did not jump into a situation like this. I mean, I, I think that that's that's sort of the dilemma that, that a lot of uh, the president's uh, supporters and, and other Republicans in Congress are under, is that if they're going to take action against them, they have to make sure it works, right? Because if it doesn't, they're, they're done, right? But on, uh, by the same token, um, I think that they, uh, that, they, that they want certain things enacted from him, and they're trying to get those because they think their voters want them. But they're also afraid of uh, inaction and passivity in the face of what the president's doing. So they're really, they're really caught between the, the rock and the hard place. Well, 72% of the country is in favor of DACA, and yet the Congress well, this is a different issue. The, the question is, 72% of the country is in favor of DACA, and Congress is going to do nothing. The answer to that is elections have consequences. So mobilize if that's not a position you endorse. <laughs> I'm so sorry to interrupt for a second. We have uh, somebody who needs to leave and they're being blocked. It's a white vehicle, license plate 7VHG739. If that's your vehicle, if you could 
please switch places with them. That'd be great. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I, I also think that one of the things that, uh, to me, has become fascinating as an advocate in the last few years is how having a majority of support for a policy is actually not sufficient to get that policy enacted. Gun control. Gun control is a perfect example where you have a very small minority actually blocking the majority from enacting what it wants done. Here in California, uh, two-thirds to three-quarters of California voters support greater transparency and accountability around police misconduct. But we have some of the most restrictive uh, laws in the country where if an officer is guilty of misconduct, that's kept from public view. And that's largely the work of the police unions and their lobbies. Um, and so I think that, you know, as we tell the story of democracy to ourselves, just because three quarters or 80 percent of the public supports an idea doesn't get, it gets you halfway there. And that's about as far as it goes. Well, you want to distinguish. I mean, we, we rely on polling data just to get some information. But you can't rely on it too much because in a democracy, um, uh, polls measure the breadth of support, but not the depth of intensity. support. Intensity. And the intensity of the support. And the intensity is what really matters in a democracy. And so when, remember when President Obama proposed universal background checks after the horrific Newtown shooting? And the, it polled 90% support. Everywhere, 90% support. And then people asked, uh, like Senator, a Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp, from a swing state, um, a typically Republican state, you know, how could you vote uh, against this? Um, and she said, well, if you go to my office, the calls are seven or eight to one against universal background checks. So the people who are willing to pick up the phone and call me, um, they're saying they're opposed to background checks. Uh, and th if someone's willing to pick up the phone and call me and tell me that, they're more likely to talk to their friend, hey, who are you going to vote for? You shouldn't vote for her because she, she voted on this policy. And so it's that intensity of support that really matters. I think that's the real story of gun politics in America today. It's actually that gun control supported by a, a vast majority. Just the intensity, is, uh, the intensity difference between supporters and opponents of gun control is vastly different. And in a, in a democracy, intensity matters almost it matters more than just the breadth of support because you're the people who are going to go out and, and get other people to vote uh, argue with your friends take out a sign and pick up the phone and call your congressperson that's that's why you know as as bleak and grim as these you know 7 or 8 months in this administration have been the things that give me hope are the women's march the people showing up at the airports uh the uh uh, the birth of the indivisible groups and the idea that people are getting up and the first thing that they do in the morning is call their members of Congress, that gives me uh, an incredible measure of hope because that's, that's the engine that drives our political system. And I think for too long, people had become very complacent thinking that democracy and the responsibility of, of, of us in a democracy was just to vote. And that's not it. That, that's the beginning. That's not the end of the story. I love this question. Oh, pause. I love this question because it's um, apolitical. You mentioned that a president can pre-pardon someone who committed a crime. However, is it possible to pre-pardon someone in advance of a premeditated crime? <laughs> Someone's writing a screenplay. <laughs> so if someone comes to Trump and says, "I plan to do this," can you pre-pardon them? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I kind of feel like 
<laughs> welcome to your world. Actually, welcome to my world. I feel like I'm one of the students in my class. Okay, but what about this hypothetical? This hypothetical? I'm always doing that. You know, it's kind of annoying on this end, but no. Uh, no, it's, uh, these, are, these, are, you know, these are a good question. We've never seen this happen before, but we can provide, we, we do know the president can pardon in advance, so we presume that that kind of pardon could exist. Um, but again, I do think that what we have to remember in a political system, I think we're all looking for the Constitution and for laws uh, to put some limits on the president. And if you're a Republican, you wanted those limits to be put on Obama. And if you're a, uh, a Democrat these days, you want those limits to be put uh, on Trump. And those limits are important, and we want those limits to be vibrant and vibrantly enforced. But a lot of our system does depend on the will of the people and what we're willing to do and what we're willing to fight for, who we're willing to vote for. If you really want to change some of the stuff that's going on with Trump, I mean, the answer is the 2018 elections uh, and fighting incredibly hard to win those elections and flip the House. Uh, that's going to really change politics in America. Um, so I do think that we have to... Uh, January 20th was for many people a very depressing day, right? The day of inauguration. Maybe for, maybe for some people in the room a very hopeful day. Um, but I think for even for those who found it to be a distressing day, the next day, January 21st, when we saw the biggest women's rights marches in history, are days to be invigorated. And, and remember, that at the end of the day, this is a democracy, and that means rule by us, not rule by anyone else. We can't depend on the Supreme Court to protect us. Uh, we have to do it. And if you're seeing stuff you don't like, you've got to get out there and fight, uh, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. That's what a democracy encourages. Uh, and I do think we've become complacent in so many ways. Uh, but there are real battles for people to get engaged. <laughs> this is interesting. Is there some type of background check in place for politicians? Should there be? Would this help with not wasting so much time and energy and be less distracting? <laughs> I think it's called an election, basically. We're supposed to, the press is supposed to vet the president. This is where I can speak. Uh, I think that personally, I think the press did a very poor job of vetting uh, our, many of our candidates in the last election cycle. Um, and there's been some talk of creating a law requiring a president to reveal his tax returns. Um, that currently is it's practice, but it's not required, and there might be cause for, for changing that in the future. Um, but there's no, they don't have, do they have to fill out a form for, and the FBI do a background check on them? No. No, they do that. there's some financial disclosure Just, forms that's for true. candidates that, that you do have, but no, no, no official background. And you, you can't fail the finance. Didn't he report himself worth $10 billion? $10 in his, billion. And then he later said, I'm worth $1 billion, and it wasn't even a story. It just went by without being noticed. So, uh, let's see what else. Does impeachment, do impeachment proceedings have to begin in the House Judiciary Committee? You know, that's a good question. Uh, there are, I think the House Judiciary Committee has to recommend uh, charges to the House, uh, to the entire House, uh, and then the House, entire House votes on it. Um, but I do think it starts in the Judiciary Committee. I don't know if there's a limitation that it can only come from the Judiciary Committee because the Constitution, Article 2, that sets up the procedure never envisioned a Judiciary Committee. So it doesn't refer to a Judiciary Committee. There may be some federal, there may be some federal legislation uh, uh, or, con or congressional House procedures uh, that specify that, but I'm not aware of any. Okay, let's see. Trying to find an uplifting topic to close <laughs> on because. 
think the Rams won today. <laughs> talk about that. Let's, let's actually talk about something that is uplifting, which is um, the resilience of our democracy. People are saying that this could be a stress test. Um, so far, are we passing the stress test? Not I don't know about you, I'm not passing the like, I'm on blood pressure medication now. It's like... I've become totally addicted to caffeine in the last seven or eight months. Uh, and it just feels nonstop. Uh, I was sharing with somebody just the other day that if I'm in a meeting for an hour and I don't have access to my phone, I start to become anxious. Yeah. I, I want to know what happened because my assumption is something happened in that hour when I wasn't paying attention. Um, but I do think that, that what we've said about uh, uh, citizen engagement, uh, people uh, learning who their representatives are, getting their numbers, their fax numbers, their addresses, and telling them explicitly, this is what I want from you, this is what I don't want you to do. Um, that's how our democracy is supposed to work. And we're seeing uh, a resurgence of that. Uh, and I think that is the hope uh, that, that, that will carry us through this period. Uh, and my hope is that it outlasts you know, this, this president, that that becomes the new normal uh, for our democracy, because I think that's the way it's supposed to be. Great. Well, thanks to both of you. Wonderful. I could keep talking all day. And thank you.